0: So, uh, with the opportunity to preach a message here, I I asked the youth group, uh, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we're in chapter 19 on Wednesday nights when we gather, I asked them what messages were most memorable. Uh, And so, they gave me two suggestions, the stoning of Stephen and Simon the Magician. Uh, So... Uh, this week we are going to cover uh, Stephen, and next week we're going to cover Simon the Magician. So that should be fun. Um, so uh, if you haven't opened your Bibles, you can do that. Uh, if you have a blue Bible in front of you, it's Acts chapter 7, which is actually page 914 there to make it easy for you. We're going to read quite a bit of that. We're going to read that all, all the way through that this morning, but not, not yet. As you've seen, the title of this message is How to Become a Winsome Radical. And so, what do I mean by that? What does it mean to be a winsome radical, and what does that phrase mean, winsome radical? Well, a radical is someone who advocates for complete change. Uh, He's an extremist. He or she calls for a new kind of world. Oftentimes, a radical calls for a departure of tradition. In a positive light, a radical is an innovator. In a negative light... Uh, He's unorthodox, or she is unorthodox. Um, A technical definition might sound something like this. Radicals attempt to understand the root of the social problem, to cultivate an approach that goes beyond what can be easily observed on the surface. Radicals seek to understand the links among various social phenomena, the real-world impacts of socially constructed beliefs, and how dominant approaches... By the elite, ignore broader social impacts. That's a technical definition of a radical. Pretty technical. We often think of radicals as bad guys, but they don't have to be bad guys. They can be good and bad guys. It's really a matter of perspective. In our day, a political radical might be someone who calls for Medicare for all, be a radical position. In America, Calling for a more socialist, economic, or political system would be radical. The, the people who represent these perspectives would be radical simply because they're calling for a departure of tradition. It would be something new. History has given us plenty of examples of radicals. Martin Luther King Jr. was a radical. He certainly challenged the socially constructed beliefs of his day, and he called for change. Steve Jobs was a radical. He challenged the world to rethink nearly everything about how we work and how we communicate. The Wright brothers were radicals. Copernicus was a radical. I'm sure you can think of other radicals. Scripture gives us plenty of examples of radicals. Uh, Jeroboam, maybe you remember Jeroboam. Jeroboam was definitely a radical. Uh, He presented two golden calves before Israel, and he declared, Behold your gods and Israel bowed down and worshiped. He was a negative radical, you might say. Josiah, on the other side of the spectrum, was a kind of radical. He tore down anything and everything that represented the worship of Baal in Judah. He was a radical. As you might suspect, there's no better example in Scripture of a radical than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a radical. Uh, The bookends of his life are two radical examples. You remember cleansing the temple. At the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. He poured out their coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. That was in John 2, and then in Luke 19, at the end of his ministry, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And these radical actions were undergirded with the most radical teaching. We studied this recently in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. How about these radical statements? You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. These are radical statements, and he certainly was a radical man. But this message is not just about being a radical. It's about being a winsome radical. What does it mean to be winsome? Well, in a word, it means to be attractive, to be appealing, to be endearing, to be captivating, to be compelling. Returning to Jesus for all the table-turning and challenges given to the religious elites of his day, we read this about Jesus. I am gentle and lowly in heart. He had compassion on them. Joy was set before him. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He deals gently with the ignorant and wayward. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. He is our advocate. He was moved to tears. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He gives a helper. He loves us now and he loves us to the end. One poet captured it this way Father like he tends and spares us, well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hand, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Jesus was and is a winsome radical. Taking in the example of Jesus and the commands given to us in the New Testament, I believe God has called us to be winsome radicals. The question before us this morning, then, is this. How do we become a winsome radical? This morning, I'd like to answer that question by giving you an example or an illustration, and that example comes to us from the book of Acts, and it's of that of a man we've already mentioned. His name is Stephen, and so this morning... We will learn how to become winsome radicals through the life and death of Stephen. You can flip, flip the slide there to the next slide, and you'll have the, the theme of the message there. Who was Stephen? Well, we first meet Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Uh, he was one of the seven men chosen to help the apostles care for the church. These seven men were chosen because, it says in chapter 6, verse 3, they were of good repute. They were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Out of the seven, only, Steve, only Stephen receives the unique statement, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In addition to helping meet the tangible needs of the church, it appears Stephen possessed some miraculous gifts. We read in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, that Stephen was performing great wonders and signs among the people. No doubt Stephen's character was attractive. It was winsome. In addition, Stephen had great wisdom from the Spirit and spoke boldly about Jesus. It was this great wisdom that landed Stephen, as we're going to see, in trouble with the establishment of his day. Acts 6 tells us that the Jewish leaders were unable to withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. If Stephen's character was winsome, then his courage was also winsome. As we will see, he was a man that could not be ignored. So concerned were the Jewish leaders that they formed a council against Stephen and accused him of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. These are certainly the most serious charges imaginable in Jewish society. One additional comment about Stephen before we look at chapter chapter 7 is the the last verse of chapter 6. Uh, if you look down at the last verse, it's verse 15 of chapter 6, it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. As noted, Stephen's character and courage were winsome. Here we see that his countenance was wiz- winsome as well. Uh, Stephen was a great man. His character, courage, and countenance in the face of extraordinary opposition proved that. The church selected him, and God honored him for good reason. Stephen was a winsome radical. Let us then turn to his defense in chapter 7, and we'll learn our first lesson. Becoming a winsome radical in life means invalidating the accusations. If you will look down, let's start at verse 2 of chapter 7. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. At first glance, Stephen's defense might seem odd to us, but it would not have been odd to his hearers, at least not in its form. Uh, Stephen's reply is, as we'll see here, a historical retrospect. In verses 1 through 53, he's going to invalidate the charges made against him by recounting the history of Israel. In this way, he will systematically demonstrate that he has not blasphemed Moses nor God. However, as we will see, Stephen's defense will also function to expose the ways in which Israel and the religious elites have themselves been found guilty. In the end the accused will become the accuser and the one standing under judgment will become the judge. As we read Stephen begins his as we read Stephen begins his historical retrospect with the patriarchal period of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The mention of Abraham and God's call for him to leave Mesopotamia suggests that God is pleased when his people are loosely tied to their plans and ready to receive guidance. From God. In addition, although the promised land was given to Abraham, he would not set foot into it. Abraham had nothing physical to grasp onto, yet he believed God. These first eight verses confirm that Stephen was not maligning Moses nor God. He is affirming what the religious leaders believe about the patriarchs and simultaneously setting them in contrast with their own spiritual roots. In verses 9 through 36, Stephen recounts the period from the sons of Jacob to Moses and the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Let's read that section now. This is a long section, so focus. (laughs) Starting at verse 9, I tried to break it up a little bit because it's a lot to read. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. "'until there arose over Egypt another king "'who did not know Joseph. "'He dealt shrewdly with our race "'and forced our fathers to expose their infants "'so that they would not be kept alive. "'At this time, Moses was born, "'and he was beautiful in God's sight, "'and he was brought up for three months "'in his father's house. "'And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him "'and brought him up as her own son.' And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and setting one of them, being and seeing one of them, excuse me, being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness, for 40 years. Stephen confirms again that he believes and understands the historic details of Israel religion as of Israel's religion as the religious leaders did. He highlights the opposition God's people encountered to receiving the promise given to Abraham. It was in fact the sons of Jacob that sent their brother into slavery in Egypt. We might say it was Israel that tried to thwart God's plan. It was God, however, that allowed Joseph to rise to power in Egypt and through a miraculous turn of events became the leader of Egypt. As we know, this allowed Israel, reduced to just 75 persons, to be saved through a great famine. Stephen reminds us that in some time, Egypt forgot about Joseph and the Israelites would find themselves as slaves in Egypt. Even worse, they suffered a genocide Recall verse 19. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants. Their male infants were exposed. Thankfully, God was not finished with Israel. It was Moses who was rescued from that genocide, and no doubt as an act of divine providence adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. God used Moses to deliver his people from the bondage of Egypt. Unfortunately, God's people were guilty of rejecting Joseph and they were guilty of rejecting Moses. As verse 27 says, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Being rejected by Israel, Moses fled Egypt and lived in the wilderness. He remained in the wilderness for 40 years before God appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush. It was there that God called Moses to return to Egypt and deliver Israel from their slavery. At this point in Stephen's defense, you can see how the defendant is slowly becoming the prosecutor. Joseph was sent to preserve the nation of Israel through famine, and with envy in their hearts, they sold him to Egypt. Moses was sent to deliver the nation of Israel from slavery, and with rebellion in their hearts, they forced him to flee into the wilderness. Who else had they rejected? Who else were they about to reject? Stephen continues in verse 37. Let's look at 37 through 41. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, "'Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him.' And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands." Although Stephen is the one who stands trial, Israel had exchanged Moses and the law for the gods of Egypt. The true invisible God was exchanged for a false visible God. They commanded Aaron to make a calf, an idol to the, of, the, of the gods of Egypt, to which they bowed in worship. In verses 42 and 43, Stephen quotes from the book of Amos and confirms the idolatry of Israel. You might recall uh, Joel just a couple weeks back worked through a message in which he, he drew this out, that Israel always worshiped idols. Even in the wilderness, they, they brought their idols with them out of Egypt. And that's what this passage in Amos is really speaking to. Verse 42, "'But God turned away and gave them over "'to worship the host of heaven "'as it is written in the book of the prophets. "'Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices "'during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel?' "'No.'" You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Rephan the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen just has one final point to make here in his defense in verses 44 through 50 he focuses on God's relationship to the tabernacle and the temple. The tent of witness or tabernacle was the movable structure that God commanded Israel to construct during their time in the wilderness. They brought that tent into the land of Canaan and it existed up until the time of David, which would have been roughly about 450 years. It was David then who desired to find a permanent sanctuary for God, but it was his son Solomon who would finally construct a house for the Lord. As important as the temple was and Stephen Says nothing negative about the temple. The fact that David was not allowed to build a permanent sanctuary seems to suggest that it may not have been as important as Israel had thought, which is confirmed in verses 48 through 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? What Stephen is saying is this. God is not manageable. You can't just build the Most High, a temple, and then tell him how things are going to be. Israel had disgraced the temple by thinking they had God at their command. And so with verse 50, Stephen has completed his defense. He successfully invalidated the accusations lofted against him and lofted against God. He does so by simultaneously defending himself and exposing how the Jewish leaders failed through history to rightly understand the great movements of God. They simply failed to grasp what God had called them to and what he had demanded and what he demanded from them. And now they stand at the brink of making another tragic decision although they had already crucified Messiah, I think here they have the final opportunity to hear men like Stephen and Peter and John and finally turn from their rebellion. They had another opportunity to recognize that Jesus was the promised Messiah. I not about you, but I am struck by God's pursuit of his people. In all of this, with all the rebellion... Here God is still with one of his servants saying, come back to me. It crucified his Messiah. And yet God is still pursuing his people. Well, becoming a winsome radical not only means invalidating the accusations, but it means indicting the accusers. And so that's exactly what Stephen does in verses 51 through 53. Stephen ceases his retrospect, and he applies all that he had said to his hearers. The nation was stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and resistant to the Holy Spirit. The nation killed the prophets of the past, and they had killed the greatest prophet, the righteous one, the anointed Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Every word uttered by Stephen is true, was true. This was the condition of the religious leaders, and it was the condition of Israel. Stephen has given us a picture of how to become a winsome radical in a hostile world. You recall from Acts chapter 6, he was full of grace and power. Now, I'm not sure what it looks like to be full of grace. I don't know that experience. (laughs) But I do find it interesting that Stephen does not take the accusations against him personal. I don't know if you noticed but in 53 verses he doesn't receive it. he doesn't refer to himself once. He certainly was in deep communion with God. His face was like the face of an angel during this defense. No doubt, Stephen lived in a unique period of history and was appointed for a special task. Yet what might we learn from such fellowship with God? Might it have been this deep communion that gave him the power to speak with such boldness? Becoming a winsome radical in life doesn't mean we don't say hard things or avoid confrontation. It means that we speak and act full of grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is chapter 7 the longest chapter in the entire book of Acts? Why is this message the longest discourse reported in the New Testament? Why did the early church choose Stephen to serve tables? Why was he found doing great wonders and signs among the people? Why did the synagogue officials mark him out and come after him? Because Stephen lived a life that can't be ignored. It was a winsome, radical life. Let's consider next what it means to become a winsome radical in death. I find find verse 54 to be one of the most compelling and tragic verses in the whole Bible. (laughs) We're going to see here that becoming a winsome radical in death means having faith in the one who stands next to God. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Apparently, while Stephen was giving his defense, a great tension was growing. The ESV says the Sanhedrin were enraged. Other translations say they were cut to the quick. The idea is to saw in half. One commentator says, Stephen's words ripped apart the veneer of their false spirituality and exposed them for the blasphemous hypocrites they were. And this phrase, ground their teeth or "gnashed their teeth, it says in some, some, some translations, communicates just how visceral their emotions were. And what a stark contrast we see in our winsome radical. Look at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. While they are grinding their teeth at him, he points into heaven and declares, Behold, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Recall the words of Jesus in Luke twelve eight, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Stephen had acknowledged Jesus before men, and now Jesus, the Son of Man, is acknowledging him before God the Father. Returning to that courtroom imagery, Jesus stands as a witness in Stephen's defense. While the earthly court is grinding their teeth against Stephen, the heavenly court has vindicated Stephen through his faith in the one who stands next to God. What comes next is, defies all wisdom and is utterly appalling. Look at verses 57 and 58. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The council rejected both Stephen and his heavenly vindication. Sadly, they refused even to hear it, crying out in a loud voice and stopping up their ears. Declaring him guilty of blasphemy, the council became a murderous mob. They rushed out of the city and prepared to stone him. The word rushed here in verse 57 is used to describe the rush of the herd of demon possessed swine into the Sea of Galilee in the Gospels. Maybe you recall that. In common parlance, they lost their minds. Casted aside all dignity and propriety, and they were reduced to a bloodthirsty mob. Having laid their garments at the feet of Saul, the stoning begins, verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What gave Stephen, standing before the face of death, the confidence to declare, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen had faith in the one who stands next to God. Death reveals who we really are. Kent Hughes writes about a French, the French philosopher Voltaire. You've probably heard of him. In life, Voltaire said concerning Christ, curse the wrench. And said, Christianity is assuredly, quote, assuredly, the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the most bloody religion that has ever infected this world. In life, Voltaire was proud, confident, and cynical. But when he died, he cried in desperation. I am abandoned by God and man. I give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months' life. Then I shall go to hell, and you will go with me, O Christ, O Jesus Christ." Contrast to Voltaire, the moment of death sometimes reveals spiritual beauty. Maybe some of you have experienced that in the most glorious and painful way, watching another person uh, expire and enter into heaven. Hughes writes about John Wesley, who died full of counsel, exhortations, and praise for God. His final words were the thrice repeated, The best of all, God is with us. The best of all, God is with us. The best of all, God is with us. Farewell. Adoniram Judson, the great American missionary to Burma, suffering immensely at death, said to those around, I go with the gladness, I love this, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Jonathan Edwards, dying from smallpox, gave some final directions, bid his daughter goodbye and expired, saying, Where is Jesus, my never-failing friend? The name Stephen means a crown or a garland. The word used to describe the reward given to the winner of the Olympic Games, a perfect name for the one who placed his faith in the one who stands next to God. Stephen would receive a martyr's crown. All of this demands the question, if death were to draw near if you were to depart from the land of the dying, what words would you utter? If death reveals who we really are, well, then what will be revealed in our death? We have one final verse, verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen, with his dying words, begs the heavenly court to show mercy on his executioners. Bruce writes, Stephen had learned his lesson in the school of him who, when he was being fixed to the cross, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Having prayed thus, says Luke, Stephen fell asleep. An unexpectedly peaceful, peaceful description for so brutal a death but one which fits the spirit in which Stephen accepted his martyrdom. If becoming a winsome radical in death means having faith in the one who stands next to God, it also means forgiving those who stand against God. It is quite natural to pray for vengeance. In fact, retribution for martyrs is spoken of in Revelation 6.10 where the martyrs ask of God, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There's no sin in crying for justice, and God will avenge his people. But in our day, that vengeance has been restrained. In this age, we look back at the cross of Christ and we look forward to his return and judgment. We plead for forgiveness and reconciliation with those who oppose us. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. This is certainly a call to live a winsome, radical life. Kent Hughes says, Stephen's example shows us how to live and how to die. Never do we see the meaning and worth of life more clearly or more poignantly than in the final moments of a faithful Christian's life on earth. I told you this morning we would learn how to become winsome radicals through the life and death of Stephen. Some final thoughts. In what ways have you, like Stephen, invalidated the accusations against God? Has God given you the opportunity to give a defense for the hope that lies within you? If so, praise the Lord. He's enabled you to live a winsome, radical life. If you're a believer, then someone in your life invalidated the accusations you had against God. Maybe it was a parent or a friend or a coworker who invalidated those accusations. Take a moment, give thanks to God for that person. Consider honoring them by yourself living a winsome, radical life. In what ways have you unsuccessfully invalidated the accusations against God? Is there a situation or a sphere in your life where God is being mocked and you haven't given a defense? I know it can be hard, but Stephen's life teaches us that we must not shy away from these difficult situations. Recall the times Stephen and the Holy Spirit are mentioned together. Stephen was one of seven chosen in Acts 6 who were full of the Spirit He was uniquely mentioned as a man full of the Holy Spirit. And again, when courageously speaking in the synagogue, his speech was in the Spirit. Stephen was yielded to the Spirit. And that yielding allowed him to speak of Christ boldly before his accusers. Recall these words from Jesus, Luke 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The life of Stephen confirms this. A life lived dependent on the Spirit is a life that stands prepared to invalidate the accusations against God. Becoming a winsome radical in death means having faith in the one who stands next to God, as we explored, and forgiving those who stand against God. Well, on forgiveness... We're never more like God than when we forgive. You've heard that. It's true. Stephen's cry for forgiveness teaches us us that there's nothing we can't offer pardon for. Forgiveness is so central to Christianity that Jesus can say this, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Colossians 3.13 is relevant. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. For those of you who have failed to have faith in the one who stands next to God, maybe there's someone here this morning that hasn't placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can only plead with you to come to Jesus. Accept him turn from your sin, bow the knee, and accept him. As, we, as I mentioned earlier, he is someone who is a friend of sinner and he will sympathize with your weaknesses. For those who are here and have placed their faith in the one who stands next to God, I would just close with the words of John Newton, who said, although my memory's fading, he hadn't expired yet, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. As I invite Joel up and the musicians, I'll just offer a brief prayer. We can sing together. Lord, may we live a winsome, radical life, and may we die a winsome, radical death. Amen.